I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And it's that time. Time for the much anticipated, highly appreciated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Uh, I'm in Toronto with my lovely wife, Sue. Listen, a friend of ours, he went out uh, on a date with a woman from the honey industry last night. He said, yeah, she's a keeper. Thank you very much. Goodbye. That's so bad. Uh, thanks, Duff, I think, for delivering the laughs, maybe, the, the groans, but delivering the jokes every Friday and has for the last six years, even when he's on tour with Guns N' Roses. GNR on tour until mid-October. Ticket info at GunsNRoses.com. Fozzie getting ready to head back out, too. Spotlight on North America starts October 19th in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We wrap up this leg November 6th in Memphis, starting and ending this one in Tennessee. Come rock with us. Go to FozzyRock.com to see all of the dates, all the ticket information, all the VIP meet and greet info as well. The best of the business. We hang out with you, take pictures, let you sing with us if you want to, and do a private concert just for you. Go to FozzyRock.com to get your tickets and VIP passes. All right. Speaking of concerts, we're doing something a little different on the show today. We're talking about Stephen King's The Shining, but we're talking about a really unique adaptation of his book. It's not a movie. It's not a TV show. It is an opera. That's right. The Atlanta Opera is doing a two-week run of The Shining starting September 15th. You can get tickets at atlantaopera.org. I'll post the links on social media. And today I've got The Shining's librettist. What does that mean? That's a fancy word for lyricist. I believe it's Italian. Mark Campbell is here. Uh, like I said, a librettist is the person who writes all the words and lyrics for the opera, and he had to get personal permission from Stephen King for every word that he wrote, all of the songs that he came up with based on The Shining. Uh, the Shining uh, is an opera, like we said, and he explains the process of going through the book and selecting what to bring to that opera stage. He explains how he tells the story through arias. That's a big word that you're going to learn what it means. The big, long opera solo songs. 
And through the ensemble chorus pieces and through some of the more spoken word singing, don't forget an opera is completely singing. There is no dialogue. Everything is done through song. And he talks about choosing which characters to focus on and which ones to leave out of the story. He talks about some of the creative license changes he made to make the story work for the opera and shares the story once again as submitting the ideas and the words to Stephen himself and receiving King's feedback and approval to move forward. It's a great story. You'll hear what it was like for Mark to then work with composer Paul Moravec, who composed all the music and stage director Brian Stufenbeel and all of the sets he came up with. An interesting story about how they work together to bring the story to life on stage and through the music. Mark talks about what they do to make sure they capture the scary horror part of the story, the psychological thriller aspect of it. It's a very, very cool conversation. The first time we've ever talked about opera here on Talk is Jericho. It was actually a really interesting conversation. So go to The Shining in Atlanta if you're there, atlantaopera.org, and stick around right now for Mark Campbell, the librettist behind the opera dictation of The Shining right here on Talk is Jericho. So Talk is Jericho, we've been around for about 10 years, over a thousand episodes. We've never done an episode about the opera. And there's a reason for that. I'm really not interested a lot in the opera, but something has come up now that really uh, piqued my interest, combining two of the things that I love, which of course is music and horror movies. And Mark is here, Mark Campbell's here to talk about the uh, brand new opera called The Shining. That's right. How do you even consider doing a, a, an opera on such a famous horror movie story when operas usually to me is Pavarotti in a tuxedo <laughs> singing about something that Italian, I can't understand. Exactly. Big, yeah, 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 yeah. Passionate, crazy passionate. Well, first of all, this adaptation, which I wrote with composer Paul Moravec, it's an adaptation of the novel right. by Stephen King. It's not an adaptation of the movie. So people who are going to, come to this opera thinking that they're going to see Here's Johnny <laughs> will be disappointed because that's not in the novel. That's only in the movie. Yeah, there's a there's a huge difference between the novel and the movie to the point where you're talking about the movie, the, the Stanley Kubrick you know, movie from the, like, 1980 or whatever it was. Yeah. They actually did a television adaptation of that probably about 10 years ago where they did it completely on the book. Yeah, Stephen King did his own adaptation. He was... He was not pleased with the Kubrick movie because it's not the story that he wanted to tell. I love the Kubrick movie, but I also love the novel. And this opera is about the novel. It's an operatic novel. It's got big passions, scary things going on. It just happens to be in English, in American English. So, Mark, you are, uh, and this is a term, I was this many days old when I learned about it. It's a librettist. Librettist. You said it correctly. Thank librettist. you. Librettist. I had to Google that and basically means a lyricist. Yeah. A lot of people go, they think because it's a, a European term, they try to put a European uh, accent on it and go, <laughs> librettist. And no, it's just librettist. It's just librettist. Yeah. Which is essentially a lyricist, right? Exactly. It's just the words. It's the words in the story. It's just a fancy word for that. Let me kind of, before we get into The Shining, once again, coming into this as a complete layman, I know nothing about opera whatsoever. You're the lyricist for the opera. So what exactly does that mean? Does somebody come to you and say, we got this idea? Like, Kind of tell us the process of what exactly a librettist does for an opera. 
That's exactly what happened with this opera in the sense that Minnesota Opera decided they wanted to adapt The Shining, the novel, into an opera. They came to Paul Moravec, the composer, and both of Minnesota Opera and Paul Moravec came to me and said, we want to adapt this book into an opera. Go. We do the commission, everything gets signed, and then I read the book, the 600 pages. Yeah. I think, wow, I've got a lot of editing to do. I've got a lot of finding the best moments in this book to turn into an opera, the most passionate moments, the strongest moments. It was a challenge, but Stephen King's story is so strong that whenever I got sort of stuck on how to make this into a piece that sings, I just would go back to his work and go, oh, there it is. It's all in his writing. You've written so many operas in the past. <laughs> Before we continue on, on the King story, how did you start writing opera lyrics? Once again, a very uh, specific demographic, I'm sure. It's so specific. There are pretty much only about 20 people in the world who do it. <laughs> and there are maybe five of those people who are able to make a career out of it that sustains them financially. I used to be an actor many years ago, but I was a terrible actor. I learned that I didn't want to do that. So I started writing lyrics for musical theater. And then in 2000, a composer named John Musto approached me and said, I'd like to write an opera with you. And I fell in love with the art form. I didn't grow up with opera. My parents... We listened to musicals, you know, like Sound of Music and like everyone else in this country, I guess. Sure. But I didn't grow up with opera at all, and I didn't like it. And I still have issues with it. But I think American opera is really doing something fantastic. And one thing I really love about The Shining is that this is an American story. It's based on a European art form, but it's pushing opera forward in a new way. I think the closest I've ever been to operas, I went and saw Andre Bocelli oh, in wow. concert once. And, you know, obviously seeing it live, just the power of the vocal is is so amazing. But what I didn't know is like you mentioned, like new operas coming out all the time. So so I guess the opera business, shall we say. You can you can say that with me. It's fine. <laughs> the the opera the business of opera yeah. is still creating new shows constantly then. It is. And also, we're very supported by companies like Atlanta Opera, who not only commissions new work, they also take old work and revisit it and make it, you know, reach our audience today. And then one thing that I really love about Atlanta Opera is that they will take an opera and do a second production of it after it's opened. And they have a tremendous record that way. And I'm very grateful. And what they have done here is form, forgive the pun, an alliance with Alliance Theatre which is like one of the most famous, best theater companies in the world. So I really love the way that opera and theater are coming together for this production. It's kind of unprecedented and it's very exciting. And you, and you, you're very critically acclaimed as well for being a librettist. I do. Okay. You, you've won a Pulitzer <laughs> prize. You've won a Grammy award. What did you win those awards for? Uh, the Pulitzer for was, uh, was for an opera I wrote called Silent Night uh, with the composer Kevin Putz. That is an opera about the Christmas truces in World War I, and that is, I'm very proud of that work. Uh, the Grammy Award is for an opera I wrote with Mason Bates called The Revolution of Steve Jobs, and that premieres at San Francisco Opera a week after The Shining in Atlanta. So is this kind of like, a, a, like you mentioned The Shining's in the Atlanta Opera, you mentioned San Francisco Opera, Santa Fe. Does every city kind of have its opera 
that is constantly bringing in new operas and changing the plays and stuff? No, not every city is as good as Atlanta in bringing in new operas. There are lots of cities out there that are just, we're just going to do the old operas and all of our donors who are dying off Mm -hmm. are going to be pleased. They'll continue, but the opera world is changing. We can't do, I love Traviata, Boheme, Rigoletto. I don't know that much about opera. So don't, when I throw out those words, don't think that I'm an expert on it. I'm really not, but they can't do those anymore. The audience for them is, is dying off and new audiences are coming to the opera. And that's one reason why The Shining, I think, is a success. It's a recognizable title. It's a horror opera, which is, is sort of a new thing. And it's bringing in people who have not been to the opera house before. And that, I'm very glad about that. Well, I, I'm one of them. I'm, I'm going to try and make the shows just to see because obviously. I'll come to opening night so I can meet you in person. <laughs> is that when you go opening night? I'll be there opening night. <laughs> so I would love to meet you in person. All right. There are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Kind of tell us once again, because, you know, we mentioned The Shining being a very contemporary story. It's obviously a horror movie, very famous horror movie. So once again, they call you and ask you to start reading this book. So let's go through, I I guess, if if I'm dealing with like a Broadway play, which I've been to some musicals, there's obviously the big hits that they kind of the cornerstone songs. And then there's ancillary songs that they'd use because opera's all singing. There's no talking in an opera. Right. So how do you write your story from beginning to end with just song through song through song? Well, I structure a libretto knowing that everything is going to be sung. So, for example, there are big moments in this opera that are in a Broadway show. We would just call it a hit number or a number. Right. In opera, we call it a fancy word called aria or ensemble. Hmm, there is okay. a giant chorus in The Shining that closes act one finale. I think... I write operas the way I would write a Broadway show. I think of the audience all the time, and I think of what would be the most exciting way for them to continue to be engaged with this story. Now, I also get to work with one of the greatest composers of our time, Paul Moravec, who understands innately how to create 
musical drama through music. Hmm. It's just in his bones. It's kind of a little bit scary because he also is what he would call, he would call himself a method composer. In other words, he has to feel the story before he's able to write the music. Now that's kind of a scary thing when you're dealing with a story like The Shining, but he, I don't know, he's just an expert at building the tension and then letting the emotional moments come through. So are you sitting down with him? Like, you know, I'm thinking very contemporary Elton John and Bernie Taupin where. Yeah. Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. Rogers yeah. and Hammerstein. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How does that work? Your questions are all, are really good. I'm surprised that you, you seem to know a lot more about this than I, than I would have guessed. Well, I think I'm a musician, right? So I understand the, the concept of right. composing okay. something, but I've never, under, I don't know how to compose an opera. Right. So. Yeah. 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 This opera, I sat down and I wrote the libretto and I finished it. I sent it to our stage director to make sure that I didn't do anything that was stupid dramaturgically. And then um, it goes to Paul. And Paul, when we worked on The Shining, I think we may have had two meetings in person. And he went over every word, every punctuation mark. And he would say something like, I don't know how to set this phrase. Can you rewrite it? And I would rewrite it Mm -hmm. because he needs to have words that will inspire him. The rest of it was done by email. Hmm. We did have three workshops where we got to hear what we had created and we made changes based on what the singers were singing. And if something didn't feel quite, I don't know, tense enough, if it was taking too long or it needed to be explored more, but it's, it's a long process. But when you have a strong collaboration, like I do with Paul, it is the most exciting thing. It's what, it's why I write opera. So uh, who's doing the melodies? Is he writing the melodies? or and you're- Oh, he's writing the melodies. I can't write the melodies. I would be embarrassed. I mean, I hear melodies when I'm writing the words, but they're so embarrassing. They're all like four, four, <laughs> the most rudimentary tunes. But I always hear a tune when I write something. I've never written words without music, so I don't even know what that's like. Is he giving you the melody that you write the words to, or is it vice versa? No, I give him... I give him the words and he writes the melody to that. So so let's talk about kind of this book because the, when we mentioned how, how long it is, and I know the book very well, not not so much the movie, the book much better. Oh, good. How do you, how do you approach, not just adapting it for the stage, but you mentioned, I mean, let me, how many songs is there in a usual opera? Because like we said, from beginning to end, it's all musical, but I would assume there's different songs for each one. Yeah. I mean, like if we look at the arias in The Shining, I think there are about five or six if we looked at the chorus and ensembles, there by ensemble, I mean like quartets, trios, duets, there's probably another five. And then there's a huge chorus at the end of, of Act One, like I mentioned, and they come back at the end of Act Two. I won't say why, because then it sort of destroys the story. And the story, the novel is different, ends differently yes. than the movie. In between, there's what we call a recit, and that's just text that's sung that's giving information hmm. but i don't like recit i like the big songs so i i write towards those big moments and what were the big arias based around because you know you can go through the book and i, I do actually want to kind of go through which parts of the book you felt were, were the biggest parts so if you're talking about the arias those are the big stat cornerstone numbers of of the opera sure i hope my i mean my memory will betray me it's been a while since i wrote this but at the very beginning, there is a number, a, a song, ensemble, with I think five or six characters, and it's called All Will Be Fine. It's Jack and Wendy and Danny, and they've arrived at the hotel, 
and everyone is saying, everything's going to be fine. You're going to be fine in this hotel. Don't worry. And then everyone leaves and they turn towards the hotel and Jack says, let's go in. And it's, of course, a terrifying moment. Paul and I have an aria for Wendy where she says, I never stopped loving you. And she's looking at Jack with her son, Danny. And I mean, this is, again, based on the book where Jack Torrance is trying to be a good father. He's trying to be a good husband. Unfortunately, the demons that he arrived at the Overlook Hotel with won't leave him. But early on, Wendy sings this really beautiful aria about I've never stopped loving you about her husband, watching him with their child. There is an aria for Jack where the hotel starts to take over his brain. Mm -hmm. That's a scary aria. Uh, there's a huge, like I mentioned, a chorus number at the end of Act One where we go back to that famous party in 1945. And there is a song, a song being crooned about like, you'll never be away from me, that sort of thing. And the Grady girls arrive and the, the gangsters arrive and all of the ghosts that are in Jack's imagination come alive and sing to him. And that's sort of, that's how we end act one. Before you continue to act two. So when you're saying that like going into the house is a very kind of a terrifying aria, are your actors, the singers, actors, are they instructed to perform this with a little more, with a little more of an ominous performance or, how do people, the singers, interpret your words? I like to think of the fact that, you know, like when you see Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance in The Shining at the beginning, you just look at his eyebrows and you know, oh, he's going to murder his family. You know, <laughs> it's like there's no real character there. He starts as someone who looks like he's going to be crazy. We do something quite differently with the opera. We see Jack Torrance as a wonderful father with some issues. And we see Wendy as a loving, wonderful mother. And there's no sense of, there's already so much that's ominous in this story. The audience already projects that. And the music brings that out. I don't need to bring it out in the text. It's already there. It's like a movie. A, some a More of an ominous scene will add to more of an ominous type of music. Yeah. And Paul is just, Paul Morbeck is just a genius at creating tension and fear and all those things we want in The Shining. So when you're thinking about, about The Shining, you mentioned how big it is and, and how intimidating of a book it is at 600 pages. What is your vetting process to adapt this to the opera? You know, I liken it to um, if I were sifting for gold, you know, and I've got a like a bucket full of sand and suddenly these like gold things start shining at me, shining. <laughs> and... There are just moments in the book that I go, well, I, I, there's no way I can cut that. I have to have it. And then there are other scenes in The Shining, for example. I don't know if you remember, but there's topiary that come alive. I sort of went, well, that's not, that doesn't feel scary to me. And that would look really silly on stage. And also, we don't have the budget to create topiary that come alive. And this, of course, is, is the actual bushes that are coming alive. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, they, yeah the, the leafy animals that are chasing him. Exactly. Yeah. They become animals. And it's like, personally, I think if I saw that, I would probably giggle. Yeah. But also I just know that it would be really hard to do that well and too expensive. And so that is not in the opera. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like those decisions they have to do with what is stage worthy and also what is singable. Mm. And it's really hard to describe like when you're reading a book and you're adapting and I've adopted like, I think 20 works, which moments they just sing. You, you know that there are certain moments that the story cannot go forward unless you put this in there. But then there are other moments where 
something just sings in a way. Well, yeah. And like you mentioned too, I'm looking kind of at the cast. The thing about The Shining is it's a very streamlined cast anyways. You're basically just dealing with Jack and Wendy and Danny, but there are some ancillary characters, but but it seems like from a from a song budget that most of the heavy lifting would be done from the Torrance family, from those three members. Not from Danny. Danny's, you know, a child. So I mostly have Danny speak as little as possible and he usually speaks. And then Paul has added like a choral sound behind him when he speaks. Mm. But Wendy and Jack do a lot of the heavy lifting with the vocal stuff, but we don't, you know, I mean, Grady and Watson and everyone has a pretty decent role. The, the biggest role other than Jack and Wendy is Dick Holleran. Mm. And you remember that he gets murdered in the movie, in the opera, and this is a spoiler alert, he survives. He be, He's actually the hero in the opera. And he has this gorgeous aria at the end about what has gone on and how terrible it is, but we have to get through and we have to get through this together as a family. It was really lovely writing for that character, but he only appears in the first scene and the last two scenes. You know, and th- there's some very iconic scenes it, once again the book is different from the movie people think the shining obviously you mentioned here's johnny hitting through the, the door i mean that is a part of of the book as well how do you make your creative you know your, your, your creative scenario there when it's such an iconic scene from something that people might not know isn't even really exactly in the book that way Part of it, if we look at the movie and the screenplay, I'm not allowed to use lines from the screenplay. So, for example, here's Johnny. All work and no play is not in the book. That's right. It's in the screenplay. I would be sued if I used it because I'm using another writer's words. So that makes it easy. But there are certain phrases in the book that just, just sort of, for example, when Delbert Grady says, I corrected the behavior of my children and my wife, the idea of correcting someone's behavior just sounded so scary to me that that had to go into the libretto. (laughs) And it is. There's a duet at the beginning of Act One called, We Husbands, We Fathers Have to Take Care of Our Family. But it's not, it doesn't sound as nice as that sounds. We we have to um, correct their bad behavior. That talk about ominous, like that's scary. Yeah, just using the word, you must correct them, right? Exactly, yeah. I might have asked this already, but if I did, I forgot. How how many songs is there in an opera usually? Oh, they vary. There are some terrible operas that have no songs. Those are the (laughs) operas I won't go to. I hate operas that are just like sung dialogue. I think that that's nonsense because they're not taking advantage of the form. I like operas that are closer to what musical theater does. But an opera can have like, a two-hour opera can have five songs. A two-hour opera can have 12 songs and then all that stuff in between. But it, it really varies. Is there an intermission in an opera? There can be. I mean, I've written operas without intermissions. This one has a intermission, and it is what I would call a very much earned intermission because of that big moment at the end of Act One. It's like, whoa, okay. And the reason the, that there's a big moment at the end of Act One is because I want people to come back for act two. Sure. I don't want them to go out to the lobby and go, oh, you know, I'm kind of tired and we don't like the babysitter we got. (laughs) Let's see what's on Netflix. I want them to come back. And so Paul and I created this big moment that makes them come back. Well, like you said, opera is theater, right? So you want to leave the cliffhanger like, oh no, what's going to happen? This is the thing, man. It is theater first. 
It is theater first. And that's what we're doing in American opera. We're creating opera that is theater, not opera that is just for the music alone. The music is, of course, crucial to the success of opera, but it comes from a theatrical place. And that's one reason why it makes sense for the Atlanta Opera and Alliance Theater to come together for this production. All right, so I'm like 10 and 0 when it comes to snagging the last delicious factor meal in my house before the new weekly delivery arrives. We all love factors ready to eat meals here in the Jericho household. They're fresh, never frozen, chef crafted and dietitian approved. And best of all, they're ready to eat in just two minutes. Eating better has never been easier or more delicious. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. So before I jumped on the plane to get the dynamite this week to wrestle Atlantis Jr., I had grilled steakhouse filet mignon with Parmesan cream, spinach and broccolini. Two minutes to heat it up, ate it right out of the factory container, and then tossed it in the garbage. Fast, easy, and delicious. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. You can fuel up with Factor's restaurant-quality meals, too. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. You can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, and Factor is less expensive than takeout. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash TIJ50 and use code TIJ50 to get 50% off. That's code TIJ50 at factormeals.com slash TIJ50 to get 50% off. So when you're putting together the opera and not just, I mean, is there action sequences in this? There is a lot of fighting and, and you know chasing and that sort of stuff, even in the book itself. A lot of, you know, the monsters and all that sort of stuff. How is that represented in the play or in the opera? No one is just standing still and singing out loud, you know, and the way that happens in a lot of old opera where, okay, I'm going to sing the beautiful love song right now. And I'm just going to go right down to center stage and sing it. And you're all going to love me and sing Bravo and encore many times. We have those moments, but it's within the stage. And we have a wonderful director uh, named Brian Stauffenbill from Opera Parallel. This is a production that's going to many places. He directed it. He premiered it at Opera Parallel in San Francisco and is going to a bunch of companies. And he's done just a wonderful job of staging it. And yeah, you can call them action sequences. I mean, there, there, there is some violence that has to happen in this story. It is amazing, though. I loved saying this. In the opera version of The Shining, there is actually one death. There is precisely one death that happens on stage. Mm-hmm. And that is Jack himself. No one else dies in this opera in the movie you'll remember dick holleran is is murdered by jack right in the opera dick holleran becomes the hero what about when you're talking about like the set i mean obviously i know you're you're the lyricist but obviously i'm sure you have something to do with that overall presentation as well i'm thinking that you know an opera stage is probably a normal theater size stage usually bigger often bigger yeah what's the the equivalent of opera staging in comparison to to a play staging Opera tends to have bigger sets and bigger a bigger budget often. This is, I would say, a medium-sized opera in, the, in that regard. I don't have anything to do with the set as much as just saying, we're in a hotel, we are in the bedroom of the hotel, or we're in this part of the hotel. I leave it to the set designer to do that. The original production had Erhard Rahm, who did this really wonderful set, and the director... Eric Simonson, they worked really closely with them. And we've got an equally brilliant production here, but it's just a little, it's smaller. It's And what I mean by smaller is that it's able to fit in more theaters. Mm-hmm. 
the lighting is incredible. It's spooky. And I don't know, like I, yeah, I can tell you a story when I did the original production of The Shining, I wanted an elevator and the director came to me and said, you're not going to get an elevator. We can't afford that. And it's just not going to work. And so I just rewrote a scene so that we didn't have the elevator. And then he ended up sort of putting the elevator in a projection. So it's even scarier. It's it's amazing what you can do these days with projections and set. Sure. And the thing about this set, sorry, I'm I'm ranting about this a little bit, but I think it's important to remember that the hotel is something that comes alive. This hotel becomes like a membrane. When you first see it, it's like a hotel. Mm -hmm. By the end of it, it becomes like flesh and blood and corpuscles, and it comes alive mm -hmm. because it's all in Jack's brain. Great use of the word corpuscles. Yeah, sorry. That might be a first on talking to you. Isn't there an adjective <laughs> corpuscular? <laughs> so when you're putting together your, your lyrics, right? And, and, and you just mentioned that you wanted an elevator. I mean, there are scenes with tractors going through snow. And I'm sure you're thinking like, oh, I've got a great idea. But then you kind of let your, your real mind go. It's just too expensive. I got to let that go. Is there ever times when you really want to push for something, even knowing that it probably can't be done from a production standpoint? Probably not. I'm not that kind of librettist, really. Mm -hmm. I want my work to be done everywhere. And so I will happily compromise an elevator <laughs> or a, or a snowcat <laughs> yeah. so that it gets performed more because everyone, you know, everyone in the performing arts right now is struggling because of post pandemic. Right. I don't see any reason why the snowcat can't be off stage and we just hear it in a, in a sound cue. And I, I did make a decision early on with this libretto in that I set Except for the prologue and the epilogue, everything is set in the hotel. So it's one set. And that's because I wanted to create this sense of claustrophobia, that there's no way out. Once though they go in that hotel, there's no way out of this. You can almost feel the walls as they're coming alive, also closing in. Well, and, and that's basically the crux of the story. Exactly. It's all in the novel. You just go back to the novel and you'll find exactly that. I was going to ask you that because the book is, is very much, you know, psychological horror. And like you mentioned, it's in Jack's brain. How do you write your lyrics to, because it's, it's a subtle lunacy. Obviously, we're still thinking the movie. Jack Nicholson was great, but he was a lot of scenery chewing. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but the real story is just this guy whose world is closing in on him as he slowly loses his mind and, and gives it away to the ghosts of the past. But how do you subtly write that when you know that somebody's going to be singing these words? So you really got to pay attention to what they're saying, but you still want to adapt these amazing, you know, moments and, 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 and paragraphs into the story itself. I think you have to, as a librettist, you have to put yourself there. You have to be the character. You have to think of how the character is feeling at that moment. And for example, when Jack has his aria, he sings to himself, hold on, Jackie boy, you're, you're, you're not going crazy. There's nothing wrong in this hotel. And then he keeps hearing things. You have to think of how you would be doing that. I don't think you can write an evil character unless you have a little bit of evil in yourself or right. <laughs> an understanding of how someone could go to that point. I know as a writer, I mean, Jack went to the Overlook Hotel to write. Yes. And one of the things that's really tough is that is the distractions with his son and his wife and I've been in a situation like that where I just really need to concentrate and I find there's like this little anger rising. Um, not as bad as his. Don't worry. I'm not going <laughs> to wield any weapon soon, but it's amazing how you can key into certain aspects of the character. That's what makes Stephen King's book so good. You can, the story, I, I mean, I've said this so many times about 
this book. But nothing is scarier than the human heart, where the human heart can go. Right. And that's what Stephen King is so brilliant at. He just keys right into that. No, you're right. And that's the thing I love about King's theory of writing is sometimes bad things happen to good people. He said that quite often. And, yeah. you know, The Shining is one of those things. He wants to be good. You know, he's had problems with alcohol in the past, but he's kicked that. Now he's trying to make a new life for his family by being the caretaker of the Overlook and kind of reenter the writing pool again. And instead things go completely awry, shall we say. Yeah, he probably didn't make the best decision about taking a winter winter caretaker job at the Overlook Hotel um, in re the remotest part of Colorado. That was probably not a great career choice at that point for Jack Torrance. So is there is there a scene, uh, a song in this with the axe in the door? How much actual acting do your actors, singers have to do while they're singing these songs? They have to do all of that. I, I don't know if you remember, but actually in the book, it's this giant croquet mallet. Yeah, uh, right, Which is right. kind of scarier than an Way axe scarier. because it's really blunt. He's going to crush their heads, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the actors have to sing these incredible notes, this very challenging score, but then also attack each other. Yeah. And Wendy has to attack Jack. She protects her child. There's a scene, one of the climactic scene is when Jack is starting to attack Danny and Danny turns to him and says, you are not my father. Mm -hmm. You are not my father. And that makes Jack break down mm -hmm. and let Danny run away. I've given away the whole story now. Now no one needs to see the opera. Well, the the uh, book is 45 years old, so no spoiler alerts. Yeah, uh, exactly. You're okay. That's true. You, that's you know true. the story by now. <laughs> but yeah, the, it, it amazes me. I mean, that's another thing I'm very proud of our opera singers in this country because they learn how to act. They don't just learn how to sing. And we train them to be able to do musical theater and opera. And so they can do those big notes that we go to opera for, but they often have to do it with a giant croquet mallet pounding on a door. <laughs> it's really a wonderful time for American opera, also because of the singers we have. Let's talk a little bit about the singers. I noticed that there's two two people cast for each character. I mean, there's two Jack Torrances and there's two Dannys and two Dicks and two Wendy's. So are they, you know, once again, being a complete layman, are they uh, switching back and forth on a nightly basis? So the reason for this is that opera is a tremendously, it requires a lot of stamina to sing an opera. And to have a singer have to do this every night, the way that it happens on Broadway, is not possible. It will hurt the operatic voice. Gotcha. And it will compromise the performance, which is the most important thing. We don't want the performance to be compromised for the audience. So we have two casts for this. One performs one night, another performs the next night, and then the other one comes back the other night, so they have vocal rest. It's a very humane way of working with singers, it also gives better performances to the audience. Is this the way most operas go, or is it just because of the availability? It looks like you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, but about 10, 12 shows over the course of three weeks or so. Is that pretty much a normal opera schedule, or would people go every night if you could? Yeah, usually an opera schedule is five performances, and they you have a day off, and then you come back and do another performance. I mean, it depends. The Met has a whole repertory sort of thing. It's rare for an opera singer to be asked to sing, for example, an evening performance and then a matinee the next day. It's really tough. Gotcha. So the thing that's really wonderful about, again, this alliance between Alliance Theater and, 
uh, the Atlanta Opera is that we get to have 11 performances. And so we needed two casts. Usually there are far fewer performances. Oh, that's also that's a lot of performances within this time frame. Oh, this is a this is unprecedented. This has not been done before, and so it's a really? big thing. Okay, because yeah, let, let me just get the, 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 so Friday, September fifteenth is opening night. Sunday, October first is the closing night. Like you said, there's two, four, six. There's eleven. So that's not a regular schedule then. Yeah, it's not in opera. That's not a regular schedule. It's a regular Broadway schedule. Sure, but Broadway doesn't have Broadway. First of all, is miked. And Broadway singers do not have to have as much vocal power as opera singers do. Hold on a second. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. So opera is not mic'd. Opera is not mic'd. In really? General. Yep. Because uh-huh. be, I'm, a, I'm a rock and roll singer. You sing on the mic. You got your inner ears. You got everything going on, monitors, all that stuff. Yep. Opera is none of that. It's just all vocal power. It's live voice. I mean, there may be a little bit of enhancement, but there are no mics. Interesting. It's, it's just not done that way. And the wonderful thing about this theater is that it's intimate and has great sound. And so you'll hear every note. I'm also pleased to say that the opera is selling really well. Hmm. Like opera has not been selling that well lately and the shining is doing really well. And I think it has to do with the familiarity of the story. Also it word is out that it's a good opera. But I, I think too, once again, the reason why you're even here besides being a charming gentleman is like, like dude, it's, the shining as an opera like you couldn't think for me of two separate entities that are put together but if it was just like you know carmen or whatever an opera would be i'd be like yeah whatever who cares but like the shining like i'm interested in seeing how you would interpret this book as an opera and it's not a play i think that's it's a opera right which is i think maybe one of the reasons why it's selling well is because it's such a unique idea like i i want to come see this for sure just if it's going to be my first opera, then screw it. Let's make it The Shining. Yay, how, you're how our audience. That and that's I am. why you, you have to come opening night so I meet you. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. But the, one of my favorite, I don't ordinarily read reviews because I find critics annoying. And I mean that just simply annoying. I do remember that when The Shining opened, my favorite reviews were the one that said, this is scarier than the book and the movie. Hmm. And that's just because of music. Music can go places. Absolutely. And you know this as a musician. Music can go places that words will never get to. We can't be as scary just with words. We Music really makes scary things, can make scary things really scarier. And passionate things more passionate. And that's why I think this opera succeeds so well. And that, again, I attribute that to Paul. Moravec, the composer. Well, I mean, you think of, of of movies and like you know the Jaws theme, for example, or, or, or exactly or, or, that's a perfect example. Or Alfred Hitchcock. Sure, movies. I was going to say Psycho. You can't even separate the music from from Psycho anymore. No, Bernard Herrmann's score is just like even North by Northwest, a terrific score. This opera is an extension of like Bernard Herrmann's what he was doing with music. So it sort of. It seems to not make sense. And then when you see it, oh, yeah, this this makes sense. It makes perfect sense. You know, I'm just thinking about John Carpenter's Halloween theme. I mean, they're, they're, you couldn't think of one without the other. Yes, exactly. Or tubular bells. Right. Let me ask you this. I, I just noticed that because you, you were talking about this opera premiering before. So I was seeing here that it did premiere in 2016 in St. Paul, Minnesota. So has this, this opera toured around many cities around around North America at this point? It's sort of an interesting thing because it opened and it was sold out. It went reviewed very favorably. And um, 
then in the opera world, somehow someone said the rights are impossible to get. We found that out later. I don't know how that happened. But in the last year and a half, there is tremendous interest in this opera. And this production from Opera Parallel is really helping us. After this, it's going to Hawaii Opera Theater, Portland Opera Company, and we'll, there are probably going to be a few other companies in cities in the U.S. that will be doing it. Does each theater have to pay for the rights of the show? Yeah. Oh, interesting. They also rent the production. That means I have no idea what the numbers are for that, but an opera company that produces this and then rents the production can make a decent amount of money from the production. Not a lot, but the idea is that it's saving, it's a lot of money to put on an opera and to create a new set and create new costumes. And so it's a lot cheaper for a company to say, oh, we'll just rent this production, fit it into our theater and still you know, generate an audience. It's, it's basically a money-saving idea, and it works very well. So the production company will create the sets and create the playbill, the songs, the listing, all that sort of stuff, and then you'll just rent it to whichever theater wants to, to, to bring it in. That's exactly it, yep. When you're talking about, you mentioned that it got great reviews, does that still hold a lot of weight in this day and age, the word of mouth, the social media coverage? I don't know if word of mouth and critics are the same thing. <laughs> yeah, um, right. No, they, I, I don't think that critics have the same power they used to have. They certainly don't have it over opera. I've had a few operas where critics have torn my work apart and they've gone on to have 10 productions. Right. Unfortunately, there is this feeling out there in the land of opera that opera has to be this really elitist art form that only people in tuxedos and gowns can understand. I hate that crap. I write stuff for people who are not dressed in tuxedos and gowns. I write for people who want to go to the opera house in jeans and t-shirt, but if they want to wear a gown, they can wear a gown too. I don't care. Or a gown and a t-shirt and jeans. I don't care. But my idea is that opera is for everybody. Opera is a populist art form. That's the way it was in Italy. The whole family went and they would see Tosca and it would be this big event. I want that in this country. I want the whole family to go to opera. I mean, the shining, I... I think you should be probably 12 years old if you know <laughs> to see this shining because I think it's a little too scary. Right. But at the same time, I don't believe in opera as an elitist art form. I think that's what kills opera. And there's a lot of critics who survive on creating this sort of snobbery and better than thou attitude about opera. And you know what? I don't care. And I love the fact that they're losing power every day. Yeah. I mean, you're right, man. And I think once again, opera is just kind of one of those things that's always been there. And I'm, you know, I'm a rock and roll guy. What would I ever want to go to the opera? And then I go to see Bocelli as a vocalist, realize, oh my gosh, like this guy's just next level. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I'm excited to, to go see an actual opera and also, too, like, I think another misconception, this is, once again, just being a layman, like, I thought all operas were, like, an Italian, like, or something like that, right? Like Everyone says that. I mean... You don't know any better. So many people ask me, like, oh, you must speak perfect Italian. No, I don't speak Italian at all. I have a good accent, but I don't <laughs> speak good Italian. No, it's in English. It's understandable. And we also do super titles in opera. So you can, if you're getting lost in, I mean, I, I have bad hearing myself. So I really appreciate having supertitles and we working on the supertitles and those, those are projected during opera. So they help an audience a lot. Well, and, and that's the thing too, man. It's like, I, I think because opera is so highly connected with Pavarotti and Bocelli and, you know, the, the three tenors, 
Fenners. You know, yeah. Placido Domingo and the other guy, whoever it was. <laughs> we don't even know, right? Is is you're always thinking that that's what opera is. So so once again, I didn't realize that that this was in English until we started talking. And it makes perfect sense, but but just I think there's a lot of misconceptions. Jose Carreras, by the way, was the uh, third third tremor. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. Sorry, Thank sorry, you. Jose. <laughs> See, I told you I don't know that much about <laughs> opera. So, but I, I think once again, it, uh, you have to reinvent what the perception of opera is to the masses. Absolutely, for people to go. And and I know we've said this a few times, but it's like The Shining. I mean, my goodness, what's next? Pet Cemetery? Like I'm there. Like whatever you guys got. Sure. Yeah. You know who's living large at my house? My three cats, Mr. Mittens, Indy, and Snickers. And you know why? Because we switched them to Pretty Litter. Okay, so it's really me and my wife and my daughters who are living large, thanks to Pretty Litter. Because Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, so no more bad cat smells in the bathroom. Pretty Litter crystals last up to a month, so less cat litter box cleaning for all of us. And less fighting about whose turn it is to clean the litter box. I got to deal with this fight every single week between my daughters. This makes it so much easier. Pretty Litter also ships right to our front door. So no more last minute mad scramble runs to the store because we're out of kitty litter. And Pretty Litter has another cool feature that makes life just a little easier. It helps us keep tabs on our cat's health. It changes colors so you can monitor early signs of potential illnesses like urinary tract infections and kidney issues. It's easily the best thing we've done for ourselves and our cats in a very long time. Like I said, Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. Those are two big wins in my house meow. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. So go to prettylitter.com slash Jericho and use code Jericho to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash Jericho. Code Jericho to save 20%. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As we start to wind down here, last couple of things. You mentioned that if you did the the, the libretto librettos to the movie, you, you would get sued because the, the libretto has to be from the book. Is this Stephen yeah. King actually giving his rights? Like, you have to get the rights from Stephen King to, to do this? Yeah, you have to get the rights. You do, you don't get the rights from Stephen King himself. You get them from his lawyers. Lawyers, yeah. He has a, a lot of lawyers because yeah. wherever there's a lot of money, there will be a lot of lawyers. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of money in all of this. Opera does not make a lot of money, but it was really exciting when I finished the libretto. It, he, Stephen King had to approve it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I did this really stupid thing where I finished it and it was around Thanksgiving. I thought, okay, I'm going to send it to him on Thanksgiving because who can be mean on Thanksgiving? What a stupid <laughs> idea. Stephen King, he can be mean on Thanksgiving. And I got an email back from my, I was just headed out to a Thanksgiving dinner and I got this email from his lawyers saying, congratulations, Stephen King has approved your libretto. Let's go forward with it. And it meant everything to me. So he was nice to you on Thanksgiving. Oh my God. The best. I couldn't have been more thankful. Oh, I, th- I, th- I thought you were going to say he was, he was angry at you at Thanksgiving. That's great. No, no, no. He was very, he's very happy with this because I was true to the spirit of his book. I did exactly what Stanley Kubrick did not do, did not do, <laughs> did not do Brilliantly, I might ask, but I did capture the spirit of the book. I made lots of changes. For example, I eliminated the topiary. Yeah. But he's a very smart man. He also is a man, I think, of the theater and of film. And so he knows. He knows what I can and cannot do. No, that was one of my – was, I was very, very happy with that. No, that's one thing that King's always been really good at. I mean, to almost to a fault at times – 
when he's he's given up his rights yes. to movies where you know the, the lawnmower man or or you know maximum overdrive you're like what is this thing it's terrible but you know when he does it right with misery or oh, the green great. mile and yeah. those sort of things i think that he's smart enough to know the difference between something that's good and something that's just going to be kind of a cash grab and with the amount of work that you had to put into this thing I'm sure he was probably quite impressed to the point where he gave you his his approval. That's that's got to be the ultimate stamp from Stephen King for sure. Oh, it's a it's one of my better stamps of approval in my life. Yeah, <laughs> if I could wear it on my forehead, I would. You know? <laughs> uh, last few questions: Do you ever get involved with like the rehearsals? Do you get to see the production beforehand? So oh yeah, kind of yeah, tell yeah. me how you guys worked that out. Yeah, in in the premiere production at Minnesota Opera. I was there er almost every day during the rehearsals. But then I also leave so that the cast and the director can kind of make it their own. They don't need me in the room anymore. I'm, I've done my job, I hope. And if I haven't done my job, they'll let me know and I'll make a change. In the case of this production, I really, I knew Brian, I had worked with Brian Stauffenbill, our director, and I trusted him completely. He did come to us and say, hey, this scene could be a little bit shorter because the stage is smaller. So is there a way that we can cut like a few notes here and stuff like that? And we were happy to do that. And so then are, is it, is it kind of exciting to see it all coming together with your, oh, your yeah. words and, and his music and the whole per performances? And Sure. It's exciting. It's also daunting because when I watch anything of mine, I just sit there and go, Oh, you could have done that so much better. Yeah, of course. Of course. I hate that, but it's a good opera. I mean, because of Paul's music, it's a really good opera and this is a solid production. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it in Atlanta. So when you go on opening night, like, do you usually sit and like, how are opening nights for you? Uh, I hate them so much. <laughs> Back in the day when I smoked cigarettes, I mean, cigarettes were made for opening nights. I don't smoke anymore, but it would be such a joy to go out into the lobby, smoke a cigarette, maybe take a little sip from a flask. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm telling your audience, bad, 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 <laughs> terrible habits. Don't do these uh, things at <laughs> Don't home, drink kids. at the um, opera. Don't drink at the opera. Uh, of course you can drink at the opera. <laughs> but now I just sort of, I don't like it really, but I, I do it because I have to. And, they, you know, I'll be there and we're going to have like a Q&A session with the composer beforehand so we can talk to people about the opera. And I like the cast party and all of that sort of fun. I mean, I've seen The Shining now, gosh, I guess a dozen times, the opera a dozen times, and I can't really change anything. So I just sort of watch it and go, okay, I guess this is an opera you wrote many years ago, if that makes sense. Yeah. But once again, I'm sure when you when you hear the the roars of approval from, from the audience, or unless they're throwing rotten fruit, which I doubt, <laughs> that's probably a, a pretty cool thing for something that you did write years ago. It is. I mean, my favorite things, I wrote a few comic moments. I mean, people don't think, oh, The Shining, comedy, what are you talking about? But Stephen King has great comedy mm -hmm. in his work. He knows that it, things can get scary if you throw in a good punchline here or something. That's true. So I get, I get pleased when the audience laughs at something or when I can sense that they're moved by a certain moment in an opera. That means a lot to me. It does. I think it's just this whole public persona that I have. I'm happiest, actually at home, by myself, writing a libretto, figuring out a story. That makes me happy. And that that's where I'm happiest. The whole public thing that I have to do, people tell me I do it well. I don't like it. I wish I didn't have to do it, but I have to do it. I'm an ambassador for new opera. I, I have to do it. Do you? Um, is there a red rum scene in the opera? Yes, but it's done differently because we don't have a bathroom mm -hmm. where you know he sees it in a mirror. 
and we have a small projection of the word, but I changed the way it happens in the novel because Wendy has been singing Treasure Island to Danny because there's this beautiful scene in Treasure Island about the mother and the son staying in a hotel. This is not in the book, but I put it into the opera. At the end, he comes out and, and after that bathroom scene, it's really scary. That happens in the opera. He comes out and the scene is about to end. And he says, mom, dad, what does red rum mean? And of course the audience knows that it's murder spelled backwards. And Wendy says, red rum? Oh, that sounds like, like a buccaneer song, like something from Treasure Island. And Jack says, no more Treasure Island before bedtime. So it's just like sort of this twist in the story. That's very cool. Yeah, she says, yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of red rum. <laughs> that was just a little creative thing I did with that. I was, And it was a way that it's still part of Stephen King world, mm-hmm. but it's more maybe theatrical. Last question for you, Mark. What's your favorite scene or song uh, in the opera? I'm sure that probably changes from time to time, but for right now, which one do you always like looking forward to? I guess because I'm a, a pretty decent soul <laughs> um, <laughs> most of the time. I really do love Dick Holleran's Ari at the end about like, we've got to put this behind us and we have to move forward. All of this terrible stuff that happened to your family. He sings it to Danny. Danny, of course, is upset about the death of his father. And Holleran says, you've got to be a good son now and you have to be strong and you have to move on. And there's just something about that moment that I find very uplifting. It's very simple, but it is actually kind of there in the book. I, we don't expect that in a Stephen King story, that moment of redemption of total redemption. Mm -hmm. Opera does that really well. And it sings again. It sings. That's it. (laughs) Well, man, once again, uh, I appreciate you kind of uh, filling me in on the world of opera and I, uh, I'm going to come see the show. Oh, I, uh, the appreciation is all mine. I have never done this kind of show and I am so grateful to you for having me on your show because I hope we bring in new audiences to the opera. So the gratitude is to you. I'm really happy that you had me speak. Well, I'm going to be there maybe on opening night. If not, I will be there at one of the 11 shows for sure. And I bet you a lot of people come check it out just because of this. So congratulations, man. And like I said, when you guys do Pet Cemetery or It, I'll be there too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Cheers, Mark. Thanks, man. All right. Talk to you Thank later. You.